You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP: Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Senior Rx Radio. I am Michelle Lamb, and I am here with my fantastic co-host. Hi, it's Dr. Veronica Riera Gilly. We are really excited today to introduce you to two very special speakers that are giving an amazing presentation at the ASCP annual meeting on aspirin guidelines and some pretty controversial stuff. I will start by introducing one of our speakers, and that is to introduce you to Dr. Taylor Neighborhouse. She is a clinical pharmacist at St. Luke's Health System in Kansas City, where she provides chronic disease management and a primary care clinic. And our second speaker today is Dr. Thu Nguyen. She received her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy. She also completed two years of residencies, including pharmacy practice at St. Vincent Anderson Regional Hospital and geriatrics at Midwestern University College of Pharmacy, Glendale. Currently, she is practicing as a clinical pharmacist at the Carl T. Hayden VA Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona, where she collaborates with other healthcare providers on an internal medicine team to provide optimal care to veterans. Thanks, Veronica. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Well, I'd like to kind of start at the beginning. And a phrase that really has stood out to me when it comes to aspirin for primary prevention is it's the end of an era. Can you walk us through how the guidelines have changed over the years as related to aspirin for primary prevention? Yes. So with updated guidelines, these have really shocked the the lay public and even providers in the primary care setting in that aspirin's use and utility for primary prevention has diminished greatly. So if we kind of look at a historical perspective, back in 2009, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force recommendations recommended aspirin for men between the ages of 45 to 79 years of age and women between the ages of 55 to 79 when the benefits outweighed the risk. So this was a great population of patients that were recommended to have aspirin on board for primary prevention. Now, as time has gone on, we've had additional studies come out and additional evidence drawing attention to the risks associated with aspirin use, especially that risk of bleeding in particular. And so most recent, we've had studies that have really found more limited benefit in terms of prevention of cardiovascular events and also drawn attention to the bleeding risks. So really making us question or be more cautious about those patients we are selecting aspirin use. And this may be because our armamentarium for primary prevention is just so robust nowadays with more conservative blood pressure goals of a lot of patients qualifying for that less than 130 over 80 to having a lot better statin utilization for primary prevention and those types of things. Those all could be playing into this big picture and change across time. But our more recent studies have found diminishing returns with aspirin use in our patients. And so So our current guidelines in 2022, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines, look both at patients' individual risk by using ASCVD risk calculators and also a really patient-centric approach. So they recommend aspirin be considered in patients' 
40 to 59. So notice that decreased age range. And those that have a 10-year ASCVD risk of greater than 10%. Now they're not saying those patients get aspirin, put it on board. They're saying, let's have a conversation that's centered around the patient, looking at the bleeding risks for that patient, the patient's willingness to take aspirin, how they're are overall and have that risk versus benefit approach with the patient to decide whether to take aspirin. And if they have increased risk of bleeding, don't do it. And understanding if they are going to do aspirin, the net benefits might be limited. So this is really interesting to me and that aspirin, of course, historically is an over-the-counter product. Can you talk about how perhaps the guidelines have been accepted or will be implemented since this Again, it's been around for so long and it's just so easy for patients to reach at the pharmacy and think they're doing the right thing. Can you comment a little bit on all this controversy over an OTC item? That's a really good point because even when we're doing like a medication history in the hospital, in the community pharmacy, in the ambulatory setting, we aren't necessarily catching all those over-the-counter products. And so that's going to be We're going to have to be really intentional in our conversations with patients to catch that they're taking it and to make sure we're using it appropriately. So I think that's a huge limitation. We were actually talking to someone at the poster presentations yesterday that was implementing some strategies for high-risk over-the-counter products. Mm -hmm. And that's something to consider in the community setting. So having maybe a a warning message or something like consider talking to the pharmacist about this product could be a good approach, but it's going to be something that our community pharmacists really could make a huge impact in educating our patients for. Yeah, I know that in the past with my transition of care service that we did at the hospital and just our conversations with our patients, a lot of times if, if we see a patient, especially an elderly patient with potentially no true indication, we would ask questions like, what are you taking aspirin for and which doctor recommended the aspirin for you? And if the patient replies with, well, I initiated the aspirin myself thinking that it's going to benefit me, we can then step in and provide the education of you know, you need to talk to your doctor about this. And these are the new updated guidelines now. So there's a lot of opportunities for pharmacists to step in, especially because it's an over-the-counter product. We do have that kind of territory of capturing more patients purchasing these products. Definitely. I'd like for you to elaborate some on the risks of what's associated with aspirin. Again, we think of it as just kind of low dose and, you know, what's the harm? If we could, let's take a deep dive into what are really some of the adverse effects that we could possibly anticipate in a patient that is taking this medication. It's really not indicated for them. Yeah, so the biggest risks when we look at aspirin because of its mechanism of action and affecting the platelet, the way that platelets work, is they're going to be at increased risk of bleeding. And so when we think about the worst case scenario, an outcome of a a hemorrhage in the brain or a hemorrhagic stroke from aspirin use, it would be probably the the worst patient outcome or those um, bleeding events that are major bleeding events leading to hospitalization and things like that. So when we think about the hemorrhagic stroke, that's actually not the 
the greatest outcome we see with these patients, thankfully. So in a meta-analysis that I am talking about in my presentation, the number needed to harm for something like a hemorrhagic stroke would be a thousand patients is that number needed to harm. The GI bleed is the, the big player that we see again and again with aspirin use. And so the number needed to harm for a GI bleed is 385 and then the number needed to harm for major bleeding event, which might require a hospitalization for treatment, is 222. So that number is pretty concerning, considering a lot of these patients we don't expect to see much, if any, benefit for them. I think it's concerning, too, when you're comparing it to the number needed to treat. Yes. So when we think about why these patients are on aspirin, they're, they're told like, oh, heart health. I heard it's good for my heart. I've been told since I was younger, it's good for my heart. So when we compare that to the number needed to treat and these general studies, it was um, reviewing kind of all the studies done since 1988. They looked at a number needed to treat for total MACE outcomes of 263. And so when you compare that 263 number needed to treat to the 222 number needed to harm for a major bleeding event, it's It's hard to justify. Yeah, hard to justify or you want to really capture that high, high risk patient. That's really interesting. I'd like to ask another question that I've been mulling over in my mind when it comes to use of aspirin. And this, I'm going to challenge you to just even speculate a little bit. Do you have any feelings on how COVID may continue to have more data come out, especially in the sense that we've got some patients that maybe have had long COVID and that the complications that we saw really deep in the pandemic were often related to hypercoagulable events and just really kind of a a change of physiology there. I, I have a colleague that had been stable on a dose of warfarin got COVID and permanently needed a higher dose. So my question, and I'm going to just ask you to speculate here. Do you feel that there may be changes over the next few years as we get more data related to COVID and and how that might even change aspirin use? Yeah, I can, I can try to speculate. As far as, you know, in our presentation, we're talking about primary prevention for cardiovascular disease. And so if there's any kind of information, you know, in the upcoming future about COVID, long COVID and related to cardiovascular disease, I can potentially see maybe aspirin being recommended for that. As far as the increase in, you know, the thrombolytic events, I'm not 100% sure. I know that with those patients, we typically use an anticoagulant to either prevent or to treat. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Post-COVID world is is going to be an interesting place, I think, just to see how this long COVID effect is for everyone. So it will be interesting to see if we can get some data on if there is an increased risk with the cardiovascular outcomes after COVID with long COVID and if aspirin could play a role with that. But Well, thanks. I know I put you on the spot, so I may have to ask the same question in an interview next year. Yes. yes. <laughs> what is the role of aspirin in triple therapy and double therapy in anticoagulation protocols? That's a great question. And so something that's evolved a lot over the last, oh, I would say even the last three years, like that triple therapy, double therapy. I don't know if you deal with that a lot in your practice, too. But when I look at patients that are candidates for like that aspirin use in that algorithm, it's really looking at what their event was, what their regimen was going into it. But 
typically we're pulling off aspirin, especially like after a year in those type of patients, Mm -hmm. in patients on anticoagulation with stable cardiovascular disease and their events more remote, we're pulling off aspirin even for those secondary prevention items because they're on the anticoagulant and we have more evidence in that area. So yeah, I would encourage everyone to review those updates because mm-hmm. they have changed a lot over the last couple of years. I know that the chest guidelines have put out new updates and recommendations on how to address triple therapy. And it's understandable that we do not want them, especially a lot of patients who are on triple therapy are older patients and at very high risk of bleed. And I think it's a really great guideline to review and understand kind of where they're coming from with their recommendations. One of the topics that's interesting to me is how recommendations may vary for men and women. Can you touch a little bit on gender differences and perhaps treatment and perhaps how the guidelines were put together? Is it a body size, physiology? I'd like to see that in there, but I also want to hear more about how you think that came about. For aspirin use specifically? Okay. Yeah, in the past, there has been some outcomes. I don't have the data like right at the tip of my tongue, so I don't want to misspeak, but I do believe there was some differences in at risk of MI in regards to how aspirin is used, especially for men, I believe, was the benefit with MI. And in the past, the benefit was with more with stroke with women. And then also just the age in which we tend to see cardiovascular events is older in women with the a reduction in estrogen and then typically at a younger age in men, which it might have driven kind of the differences in the past. In our newer studies, I don't believe they saw as much of a gendered effect in those patients. And so that's why that's kind of dropped off and every person is um, individualized in those. Do you have additional thoughts? No, I think you've got it. Good job. What else would you like to add for our listeners that we haven't covered already? I think something that we try to focus on in our presentation and in thinking about our patients and how to prevent cardiovascular events if aspirin's off the table is, well, how are we trying to prevent cardiovascular events. It's still the, the top killer in our country, right? Yes, just um, because so. aspirin is not available does not mean that we just stop there. There's a lot of other opportunities to prevent cardiovascular diseases in many different ways. And so we do touch on the various strategies in our presentation. The biggest takeaway that I want people to our listeners to think about would be that a lot of this requires lifestyle modification, whether it be changing your diet, nutrition, and even disease state modification too, relies a lot on developing those healthy habits and creating a change in mindset. And if we are to be effective healthcare providers providing this kind of education and counseling, that we do need to adopt a lot of different types of strategies when we're collaborating with patients. So utilizing a lot of those open-ended questions like, how do you feel? How can I support you? What do you think about this recommendation that I'm making? I think it will create a safer space for you as a pharmacist and your patient to come up with things to help you, to help the patient with their habits and healthy lifestyle changes. Thanks, Stu. I know in your presentation tomorrow, you'll be talking about the stages of change model. And I'm curious what tips you might have for consultants that work in long-term care facilities when their medical directors are in that really early stage of change, where they're 
just kind of maybe a little stuck in their ways and, and are hesitant to take that aspirin off. Can you give me, how about a, an elevator pitch on, on selling me on these new guidelines? So we're speaking to medical directors, so like a medical professional, because the, the, the prescriber med- specifically. Yeah, the, the stages of change were are more for when you're talking to a patient and kind of assessing where they are when they're making those changes in their habits or changes in their lifestyle. But if you are making a recommendation to a medical provider or your medical colleague, I think that discussing the evidence that Taylor had described earlier is a really great start. And beginning to really focus on the fact that this is primary prevention that we are trying to prevent versus a secondary prevention and really explain the the risks and benefits of adding on an agent that can really increase worse outcome, higher mortality in some cases, you know, compared to the benefits. And I think when you're speaking to a medical colleague in that way with those evidence, but also the significance of the situation, I think that would really help the recommendation come through. Thanks. Those are great reminders. So how can our listeners find you if they have more questions? I am available on LinkedIn. I'm Yes, it's Thu Nguyen. <laughs> That's me. Yes. I am. I try to be pretty active on LinkedIn and trying to connect with a lot of pharmacists and really promote that collaborative way of interacting with patients and that holistic kind of patient interaction. So please look me up on there. Thanks, Thu. How about you, Taylor? Bye. I am also available on LinkedIn, Taylor Neighborhouse, or by email. It's just my name at gmail.com, Taylor Neighborhouse. Okay. Yep. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to your presentation tomorrow and appreciate your time. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.